God's covenant with Abraham. And uh, we want to start in uh, Genesis chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. So if you want to go ahead and turn your Bibles to Genesis 12, you'll be ready for when the point in time we, that we get there. It, uh, it was an amazing thing for me to discover that Paul taught the churches that, uh, that he founded, and uh, even including the, the church at Rome, which he didn't start, but that he wrote a letter to. He talks a lot about um, uh, the history of Israel. He talks a lot about Abraham as being one of our forefathers. And the thing that struck me as, as interesting about that, and it wasn't an awfully long time ago, it was some years ago, but not an awfully long time ago that I, that I first noticed it. He's teaching Israeli history, Jewish history to Gentiles. Now, normally I wouldn't think that would make sense. Why would the Gentiles need to know about Jewish history? But we see in the letters that he wrote to the churches at Galatia that he talks about, um, uh, well, in Galatians 3.13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Verse 14 goes on to say that, or so that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles. Well, clearly, he's not leaving them in the dark. He understands uh, that they heard him teach about Abraham and some of the, the uh, important parts of Jewish history. And he did the same thing with the Romans. He wrote in Romans chapter 4 about Abraham being strong in faith, giving glory to God for concerning things that hadn't yet happened or things that he couldn't see with his natural eye. And, uh, and it, it dawned on me how important it is for us to understand or have a basic working knowledge of Jewish history or how God dealt with Abraham and, and, and others that followed him so that we would have a clear picture of who we are in Christ, what God is like. God doesn't change, whether it's back then or now. And so I want to talk to you a little bit about Abraham. The Holy Ghost seemed for it to be fit or appropriate for Paul to talk a good deal about Abraham and the, the things that happened to him. So let's start in Genesis chapter 12. I'm trying to get to chapter 15, so we want to just hit some high spots real quickly. Genesis 12, verse 1. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred. Notice that. He said, Leave your family's home and leave your relatives. And from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee, and I will make of thee a great nation. And I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee. And curse him that curses thee. In thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. A lot of times people try to bring that into the New Testament. And they talk about the, uh, America's blessing is only because we stand with Israel. And folks, that's not how it works anymore. The seed of Abraham is identified as those that are in Christ. Not the physical state of Israel. Now don't get me wrong. I'm not saying God's not on their side. He clearly is. And the Bible tells us during the tribulation period that he's going to show how much he's on Israel's side uh, when he gums up the works and everything the Antichrist tries to do. But our blessings don't have anything to do with blessing Abraham or blessing the nation of Israel. Our blessings have everything to do with Jesus who paid the price for us. So it's not about bless them that bless you for us. It's not that way anymore. Verse 4. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken unto him. Notice the next phrase, and Lot went with him. Now that's the very thing God told him not to do. He said to leave your family home and to leave all your kindred, all your relatives. But Lot went with him. And Abram was 70 and five years old when he departed out of Haran. 
And um, skip with me to chapter 13. Like I said, we're just going to skip around a little bit and get some of the basics for a foundation. Genesis chapter 13, verse 1, And Abram went up out of Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot was with him. Lot's still there, unto the south. And Abram was very rich in cattle, in silver, and in gold. Verse 5, it says, And Lot also, which went with Abram, had flocks and herds and tents. And the land was not able to bear them, that they might dwell together. For their substance was great, so that they could not dwell together. And there was a strife between the herdmen of Abram's cattle and the herdmen of Lot's cattle. And the Canaanite and the Perizzite dwelled then in the land. And Abram said unto Lot, Let there be no strife, I pray thee, between me and thee, and between my herdmen and thy herdmen, for we be brethren. Is not the whole land before thee? Separate yourself, I pray thee, from me. If thou wilt take the left hand, I'll go to the right. Or if thou depart to the right hand, then I'll go to the left. And we know what happened. Lot picked the cities of the plain, Sodom and Gomorrah. And, um, and he moved him and, and all of his possessions there. That didn't turn out too well in the long run, you may recall. It seems to me that one possible explanation for why God was wanting Abram to leave his family, including Lot, which was his nephew, it certainly, one thing that we know for sure is that it certainly would have bypassed or put a, uh, removed the possibility of strife, the strife that, that caused them to separate. But now I want you to see something else as kind of a background or as a um, confirmation, really. Notice in verse 14, after Lot goes towards Sodom and Gomorrah, and the Lord said unto Abram, after that Lot was separated from him, I want you to realize that every time Abram took a step further toward God into what God really told him to do. He always got an additional visitation or instruction or some kind of blessing came. Now, I don't want to leave the wrong impression. It's not like God was mad at him. We don't see anywhere in here where God says, who's that? Talking about Lot and why'd you bring him when I told you not to or that type of thing. But I do want you to see that Abraham wasn't perfect in everything that he did. And God didn't withhold the blessing from him as a result. So the Lord said to Abram after that lot was separated from him, lift up now your eyes and look from the place where thou art northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land, verse 16, I'm sorry, verse 15, for all the land which thou seest, to thee will I give it. He's talking about a promise to be fulfilled. He's talking about something that will happen in the future. For all the land which thou seest, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed forever. And then he makes his first declaration about the seed of Abraham. And I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth, so that if a man can number the dust of the earth, then shall thy seed also be numbered. Now turn with me to chapter 14. Chapter 14 fills us in on the, the kings. There were four kings that came out and fought against five kings. The winning side, the four kings, uh, which made up the winning side, took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah as spoils of the, of the war that they fought. And Lot and his family and everybody else was with him. They were taken captive. And uh, where do we want to start reading? Verse 14, Genesis 14, 14. And when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his trained servants born in his own house, 318, and pursued them unto Dan. And he divided himself against them, he and his servants, by night, and smote them, and pursued them into Hobah, which is on the left hand of Damascus. And he brought back all the goods, and he also brought again his brother Lot, and his goods, and the women also, and the people. 
And the king of Sodom went out to meet him after his return from the slaughter of King Cheddar. However you say that. And of the kings that were with him at the valley of Shava, which is the king's dale. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine. And he was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the Most High God, which has delivered thine enemy into thine hand. And he gave him tithes of all. And the king of Sodom said unto Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods to yourself. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lift up my hand unto the Lord, the Most High God, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take from a thread even to a shoe latchet, I guess that's a shoestring, and that I will not take anything that is thine, lest thou should say, I have made Abram rich. Now I want you to turn with me to chapter 15. Chapter 15 is the pivotal point. Chapter 15 is what is the, is the reason why Paul is inspired by the Holy Ghost to tell us about Abram and to follow in his footsteps. It all hinges on chapter 15. Notice chapter 15 starts with, and after all these things. You see that? Now, we wouldn't know this if we don't have a working knowledge of the, uh, uh, well, I started to say Hebrew, but it's really ancient Hebrew. And, and I don't. I, I don't assume you do either. There may be one in a million persons that, do, that, that would. He's probably sitting right back there. But uh, uh, in the ancient Hebrew, that phrase, and after these things, ties what's about to happen with what did happen. In other words, it tells us that the preceding events are necessary to understand and follow and be aware of if we're going to understand what happens from that point forward. Sometimes it just says and. In the Old Testament, almost 60% of verses start with and. And it's God's way of saying this is a continuous story. It's God's way of saying this built upon this and this built upon this. The times where you don't see it, see it is when there's a big jump in time where we don't have any information between two separate events. But here specifically where it says, and after all these things, it's talking about the things that went before. Now we just read in chapter 14, we know what Abraham's condition was. He grew very rich in silver and cattle and gold because of the blessing of God that was upon him. And Lot did too. They had to separate. So when these five uh, enemy kings, well, I've got it backwards. The four enemy kings attacked the five because they were stronger and they won the battle. When Abram heard this, he took his 318 trained servants and he made a guerrilla operations to get back Lot and all of his stuff. Now it's easy for us and... and uh, it might be even preferable for us to think that Abraham and his 318 people defeated all four of these king's armies. But that's not what happened. This is more of a special operations nighttime recovery mission. He took 318 people and went against the enemy camp. But just the part of the enemy camp that, um, that had Lot in the possessions of Sodom. He didn't take on these four kings. He went in the, in the uh, dark of night and made a surprise attack, a sneak attack against one certain part, division of the armies that had come against all the, the cities, not just Sodom and Gomorrah, but all the cities in the plain. And he was successful. Certainly God was with him and God helped him. But he didn't kill everybody. It says he pursued the armies that he attacked, the part of the army, the portion of the army that, uh, that was relevant to, to Lot and his stuff, his family. And so they carried out this guerrilla raid in the nighttime and pursued the, the, uh, the enemy to a certain place. 
But the rest of the enemy armies, the rest of that four king alliance, they're still out there. Now, with the situation as we've described it, what would you expect the next thing to be? Well, those remaining kings and their armies are going to want to come after the one that just sneak attacked them during the night, wouldn't they? So when it says in Genesis 15, 1, and after these things, it's talking about part of, uh, part of what it's talking about is what Abram had done and the danger that it put him in. He's now got the remaining part of that army that are enemies of his. They didn't know him. They couldn't have cared less about him. And now he attacks them and gets back Lot and all the, the stuff that goes with him. And now he's got enemies, enemies he didn't have before. So notice what it says. God's first statement to him. And after these things, the word of the Lord came into Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. He's saying, You don't have to worry about those people that are after you now. You don't have to worry about those other kings that are now your enemies. I'll take care of you. Now, folks, there's a principle here that it's really important for us to see. Abram did what was right, did what was commanded by the, the culture of the day in going after the enemies of Sodom and Gomorrah to bring back Lot and all of his family and his stuff. He did what was right. And because he did what was right, God said, you don't have to worry about the enemies you've made. I'll take care of you. I'll be your shield. Notice the next thing that he said. He said, I'll be your exceeding great reward. Now, why is he talking to him about his reward? Because Abram didn't profit from this thing. He gave all the goods back to the king of Sodom. Remember, the king of Sodom says, you keep the stuff and give me the people. And Abram said, I'm not going to take anything from you. Only thing I'll, uh, I'll take is what the young men have eaten during the course of the battle. But I'm not going to take anything from you. And do you remember the reason why he said? The reason why he made the commitment is because he didn't want anybody to say that something else had made him rich other than God. Here's God saying, because you've put me first. Because you've been willing to do what was right and stand upon the principle that I'm your provider. I am now, therefore, your exceeding great reward. The, the words exceeding great reward in the Hebrew literally mean vehemently increasing payment. Now, you may remember in, in uh, Hebrews chapter 11 where it tells us about Moses. It says Moses rejected the pleasures of Israel of uh, Egypt, even though he was due them because of the situation of his upbringing and so forth. But he rather chose to suffer the afflictions of the Jews than the pleasures of sin for a season. And the principle is simply this. When we put God first, this works as far as the tithe is concerned, and I think this is especially the reason why it's listed here in the way that it is. Tithing was never a part of the law of, of Moses. Tithing was, uh, I'm sorry, it was never part of God's commandment to Abram. It became codified in the, uh, the law of Moses because Abraham did it as a memorial unto God. He did it not because God told him to. We can't find any record where anybody is tithed up until that point in time. Abram just seems to come to the place where he recognizes that Melchizedek is the priest of the Most High God. I don't know how that works. I don't know what priest there would be, what people he would be ministering to. Because Abraham was the one that God was making a covenant with. He hadn't gotten there yet, but he's on the way to making this covenant. 
So I'm not sure who Melchizedek is. I've heard all the arguments one way or another. And I'm settled that there are about three arguments that could be right. Past that, I don't know. But Abram offered tithes to Melchizedek out of a heart for God. Just because he wanted to bless the one who represents the one who made him rich. The one who's been good to him. And just as the same thing, the same principle, just as God told Abram, because you've done the right thing in recovering your nephew Lot and all the stuff, I'll be with you. I'll be your shield. I'll be your defense. In the same way, he's telling him, because you chose to take the position you did with the money, I'll make sure that you wind up with more than you would have had if you'd kept it. And folks, that's the principle of the tithe. That is the principle of the tithe. It's not that we give so that God will give us more. It's that we give out of a heart of love and appreciation for it. And he shows just how much bigger he is than the money we give. Can you see that? That's why this verse 1 starts with after all these things. Because what happens when God speaks to Abraham? Well, he hadn't become Abraham yet, but you know what I mean. When God speaks to him, he's confirming that he'll be better to him than anything that the world would or could provide for him. So again, verse 1, after these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield and your exceeding great reward. And Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless, and the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is mine heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. Now, I want you to see how things are taking a turn. This is not the first time where Abram's asked for a sign. It's not the first time he's asked God, how, am I, how will I know? He's got a promise that's lasted for a long time, that's been in effect for a long time, and been unfulfilled for the length of that period. We don't know exactly where this is on the, the, the age of, uh, of Abram, but he's probably already getting to the point where you wouldn't naturally expect somebody to be able to have kids. The one thing about this, though, that I want you to see is that he's talking about the inheritance that God has promised him being tied to the seed. Before then, he's just been talking to God about things in a general sense. But now he's asking specifically. He's talking specifically about the inheritance being the seed of Abraham. And so the Lord answers. He brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. Now you remember in chapter 13, verse 16, I think it is, where God showed Abram the dust of the earth. He says, so shall your seed be. If somebody could number the dust of the earth, that's how large your family is going to be. But now God's doing something different. He's getting him to look toward heaven. He's numbering the stars or comparing the number to the stars, not dirt, not dust. They're entering into a different place. They're coming to a different understanding. Abram's coming to a different understanding, and God's bringing him into a deeper relationship than he had before. So after he tells him, look toward heaven and tell the stars if you're able to number them. And he said unto him, so shall thy seed be. Verse 6 is the, the scripture on which all this stuff hangs. It's the very pivotal scripture in Abraham's life. 
and for us. It says, and he believed in the Lord and he counted it to him for righteousness. He believed in the Lord and he counted unto him for righteousness. This literally says in the Hebrew, and he stayed himself. And he stayed himself upon the Lord. And God counted it to him for righteousness. Now, folks, there's something that's real interesting about this. And I I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but I do want to mention it. Back up with me to verse 1 again. After these things, the word of the Lord came into Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I'm your shield and your exceeding great reward. This is the first recorded instance that we have of a vision. First time the word vision is used in Genesis 15.1. First time that the Lord says, Fear not. Of the hundreds of times in the scripture that it talks about fear not or be not afraid, this is the first one, first time it's used. Verse 2, and Abram said, Lord God. First time this phrase is used, Lord God. It means Adonai, it's the two words Adonai and Jehovah. First time it's used. Verse 6, it says, and he believed in the Lord. This is the first time the word believed is used. It's the first time the word counted is used. He believed in the Lord and he counted it to him for righteousness. And it's the first time that the word righteousness is used in the Bible. This is a beginning point for a relationship with God that Abram either didn't have before because he was walking in partial obedience, not full obedience, or that he might have had before and didn't know it. Verse 7, and he said unto him, I am the Lord that brought thee out of Ur of the Chaldees to give thee this land to inherit it. Let me back up and make a comment. should have made it before I read that verse. When it says he believed, verse 6, and he believed the Lord and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Let me ask you a question. Did he not believe when he left Ur, his father's land, and went to where God told him to go? Hebrews chapter 11 says he did said by faith Abraham left the city of or the the cities of the Chaldeans he left the city of Ur where his family was from and he followed the Lord to a land he knew not so it's not the first time Abraham has exercised his faith but it's the first time that he's exercised his faith regarding the seed and the inheritance thereof Romans 8.16, you'll be familiar with this one because of some teaching we've done in other services. It says, the Spirit himself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Verse 17 goes on. We don't usually talk about it any further when we're talking about being led of the Lord or the inward witness or things related to that. But Romans 8.17, after it tells us that the Spirit bears witness with our own hearts, our spirits, that we are the children of God. Verse 17 says, and if children, then heirs and join heirs with Christ. And if children, then heirs. The theme is very simply this, folks. And this is not some big revelation, I'm sure. But the theme is very simply the blessings, the inheritance, all that belongs to us is relative to the seed of Abraham. Now remember in Galatians chapter 3, I hope you know this well enough without us having to turn there. Paul talks about after Christ has redeemed us from the law so that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles. He talks about the seed of Abraham. And he said the promise wasn't made to the seeds, plural, or just the natural descendants of Abraham, but to the seed, singular, which is Christ. 
it goes on in Galatians chapter 3, verse 29 to say, And if you be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So this is big as far as God's concerned. It's huge because he's talking about the seed, which is God's complete plan of redemption. He's tapped into the plan of redemption at this point, which was the only reason God ever saw man to have a covenant with to begin with. And he said unto him, I am the Lord that brought thee out of Ur of the Chaldees to give thee this land to inherit. And he said, Lord God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? Now, this is not a, a, a sign or an action of unbelief. If it was, God would have told him right away. But everything about this chapter is, is based on verse 6, and he believed the Lord. He believed what God was telling him. But he knows. He's been with God long enough. He's seen God do miraculous things. One of them was probably the defeat of the enemy, the, the four kings, to recover Lot and the stuff, and his family and the stuff. He knows that God's been with him. He knows God's the one that made him rich. So much so that he takes special care that nobody can say that they added to Abraham. Complete commitment. So when he asks, how am I going to know? This has got to be something where he's led by the Holy Ghost. Because that request or that question begins the covenant, the making or the cutting of the covenant that everything hangs on. That everything was based on. So the Lord said, the Lord answered him, Take me a heifer of three years old, and a she-goat of three years old, and a ram of three years old, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he took unto him all these, and divided them in the midst, and laid each piece one against the another. But the birds divided he not. Notice that. Notice God said, when he asked for the sign, How shall I know that this sign, or how shall I know that your promise of my seed being like the stars of the skies will come to pass. God said, take me, a heifer of three years old, and a ram of three years old, and a she-goat of three years old. Now, the three-year three period of time references or is relative to the time of Jesus' ministry on the earth. Because everything that's going to happen with this cutting of the covenant between God and Abram Everything about that is what Jesus fulfilled. These things, he's entering into a type of Jesus. The best type that we have in Old Testament history of Jesus and the work of Jesus when he comes to be our substitute. So God is asking for things that are not wild beasts, but things that are readily available to Abram. These are animals that serve mankind. These are animals that he has uses for. In his daily activity. Now the heifer probably uh, references the strength of man. The she-goat is always referenced to as far as the sin offering is concerned. And the ram is relative to consecration. If you go look at the ritual sacrifices that are part of the law of Moses, you'll find that when there's a sin offering, it's always a goat. When it's a consecration offering, it's a ram. And the heifer is the animal that was used primarily as the general offering for Israel. The birds refer to something that's heavenward. Just like he told him this time, differently than in chapter 13, don't look at the dust of the earth, look at the stars of the sky. 
So God brings himself an offering through his instruction to Abram. Verse 11, it says, And when the fowls came down upon the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and lo, a horror of great darkness fell upon him. Now what happens next, you may remember the story, how that we'll read in a few verses, how that God walked in between the pieces that were divided. He's giving him instruction on how to cut or make a covenant with himself, with God himself. Actually, what it says in Galatians, again in chapter 3, it says that God made a, a covenant with Abraham with Jesus as his representative. In other words, Jesus represented God. A covenant is always between two sides, two parties. Jesus represented God because he was the son of God. And he represented man because he was the son of man. He represented a Abram in this because he was the son of man. So Jesus is effectively enabling God to make a covenant with himself. Not just with Abram, but with his representative, which was Jesus. And so God gives him instruction. He talks to him about the things to come regarding his seed. Now, notice where it says, let me read this verse again. Verse 12. This is a real tough verse. It's really tough for the translators to, to bring out the meaning. And as far as the translation is concerned, they did very well. The translation is accurate. But the description, what it's trying to describe happened, I'm not sure is so accurate. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and lo, a horror of great darkness fell upon him. This talks about something that was otherworldly. It's a supernatural event that's taking place. But where it talks about the horror of great darkness, it's not talking about something for Abraham to be afraid of. It's talking about something that's taking place in the spirit realm on such a level that the reverence and awe for God that Abraham experiences is almost scary. And it just shows the importance. In my thinking, it refers to the level, the depth of the fulfillment of God's plan. I want you to notice something else about this. The only thing that Abram does, he brings the, the animals that he was commanded to bring. He offers them as a sacrifice unto the Lord and divides them. The way that this covenant worked, as I understand it, or as I've read through research, it says when he laid the uh, animals side by side and divided them, there's a, a, a middle path between the two sides, the two halves of these animals, that's a blood trail. They're sacrificed, they're killed on the spot, split right down the middle as much as possible, and the blood is there in between the, the, uh, the carcasses. And Abram's only job, only job, once the cutting was done, once the stage was set, his only job is to keep the fowls of the air, the birds, from attacking the carcasses. This signifies, this is a type for us, that Jesus did all the work. Our only job is to make sure the devil doesn't steal from us what was won by his blood. To make sure the devil doesn't take from us the blessings of Abraham that Jesus fulfilled for us. So notice beginning in verse 13. God starts telling Abraham about his seed and their future. There's a, a seven-pronged prophecy in what he says about Israel and the seed of Abraham. 
And he said unto Abram, Know for a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in the land that's not theirs. He's talking about the land of Egypt. You remember the story about how Joseph is exalted, the prime minister of Egypt. And during this time, the seven years of great famine, the seven years of plenty first, and then seven years of famine, his brothers come to him. You remember the story. We won't go into all the detail. But through a, a series of events that happened for many years, took many years to accomplish, they finally come to the knowledge that, that uh, Joseph is alive and that God has spared uh, Jacob and his sons and all of Joseph's family for this purpose. They come and they dwell in the land of Egypt as the Pharaoh's guests, honored guests. So he said, there'll be a stranger in a land that's not theirs and shall serve them. Now the service is talking about the time before they were made slaves. The Bible tells us that when uh, Jacob and all of Joseph's brothers and, and everybody in their families, when they came to that place, Pharaoh welcomed them because he had such respect and admiration for Joseph. But then the Bible says that there arose a Pharaoh that didn't remember Joseph and didn't have any respect for him. Well, there was a period of time that Israel served them. Exodus chapter 12, verse 40, I believe it is, says the time of uh, uh, Israel's sojourn in Egypt was 430 years. Well, here it says, it's going to say uh, in the next phrase, they shall afflict them. Egypt shall afflict Israel for 400 years. Some people look at those scriptures and say, well, see, there's discrepancies in the Bible. The Bible contradicts itself. And nothing could be further from the truth. It's telling us how long Israel served in Egypt in peace. And that was for, for, for uh, 30 years. But after 30 years of being there, then the Pharaoh that didn't remember Joseph anymore made slaves of the Israelites. So the Bible's entirely accurate. It talks about the total length of time they were there and how much of that time they were slaves. They were there for a total of 430 years and they were slaves for 400 years. So, first it says there'll be a stranger in a land that's not theirs. Second, they shall serve them, which they did, just like Joseph served Pharaoh. And they shall afflict them 400 years. They were kept slaves for 400 years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge. Well, we certainly know how that came about, don't we? The ten plagues of Egypt, when God sent Moses to say to Pharaoh, let my people go. Also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterward they shall come out with great substance. Psalm 105 verse 37 says, God brought them forth with silver and gold, and there was no feeble ones among them. And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace. Now he's telling Abraham what his future is going to be. You won't be taken captive. You won't be in a land serving as somebody else. Thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace. Thou shalt be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. We have a hard time with, uh, with words like generation because we think that generations mean 40 years. But do you remember even in the wilderness, Moses was lamenting at the young age these people were dying. Now the reason they were dying young had a lot to do with the disobedience that they uh, expressed and took hold of through their evil report and not being willing to go in and take the promised land. But Moses is complaining that these people are dying at 70 and 80. Well, Moses didn't go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go until he was 80. He lived to be 120. So he's looking and watching all these young people die around him. He's saying the strongest ones only lived to 80 years old. Well, generations were even longer than that in this day. According to Exodus chapter 6, about verse 16 through 19, somewhere around there, 
it talks about the generations of Levi. It says Levi was the first generation. Well, Levi was one of Joseph's brothers that came and, and um, was part of the, the party that found out about him after he revealed him, after Joseph revealed himself to his brothers as being alive. So Levi is the first generation. The Bible says he gave birth to Kohath, among other children's sons. Kohath is the second generation. The third generation was Amron. Kohath, as a part of his family, there were many other brothers and sisters. But he gave birth to Amram. And Amram was Moses and Aaron's father. So the Bible is just exactly accurate, purely accurate. It went from Levi to Kohath to Amram to Moses and Aaron, who were brothers. Moses and Aaron were the fourth generation that brought Israel out of the bondage of Egypt. Just like God said. But in the fourth generation they shall come hither again for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. And it came to pass that when the sun went down and it was dark, behold a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between these pieces. Now the smoking furnace and the burning lamp, those are kind of difficult to translate as well. But they represent God. They are trying to describe this covenant that's being made. Now remember a covenant was made up of two parties. The way that it worked is once the, the, the animals were slain, the blood trail was, was set forth. Then one would go walk toward the other one, turn around and walk back. The other one would start from their end, walk toward the other individual, the second party, and then walk back. But Abram's not cutting a covenant. God is cutting a covenant with representatives. Jesus represented God and Jesus represented Adam, uh, Abram. And so where it says that a burning lamp and a uh, smoking furnace is talking about the two descriptive or uh, descriptive characteristics of God in this cutting of the covenant. They probably correspond to the cloud that Israel saw in the wilderness. And the other part is the pillar of fire. At night, remember, it was a pillar of fire. During the daytime, it was a cloud. It's talking about a manifestation of God himself. So it's probably talking about, probably referring to the glory cloud and the pillar of fire. The glory cloud may have represented God. The, uh, the smoking furnace may have represented God. The burning lamp may have represented Abram. But Jesus took the place of both parts. Now here's what I've been trying to get to all, all the time. And I want you to notice very clearly, verse 17 again, And it came to pass that when the sun went down and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between these pieces. In the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. First time we see a covenant with Abraham. We've seen God promising good things. We've seen the blessings of God upon Abram make him rich. So much so that he and Lot, the land couldn't bear them both at the same place. In the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying unto thy seed have I given this land from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates. He talks about the other boundaries. Now do you remember we pointed out in Genesis chapter 13 verse 16 where God said get up and look unto this land will I give thee notice the things have changed he said this land have I given thee now why did they change because the sacrifice had been made because the sacrifice had been made folks Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on the tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles through faith, and that we might receive the promise of the Spirit. 
the land that we possess has been given because Jesus, that which is the fulfillment of this type, the sacrifice has already been made. There's nothing that God withholds from his children on any level, in any area. Because the Bible says we've been blessed, not going to be blessed. We have been blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. Why is that? Because of what Jesus did for us. Whatever you need, it's already yours. Whatever spiritual blessing, whatever spiritual help, whatever is necessary for you to enjoy life and fulfill God's plan for you here on this earth has already been given to you. We just need to recognize the, the seed. We need to recognize the sacrifice that, been, that has been made. We need to recognize that our inheritance is all through the work of Jesus. And knowing that, the simple truth of that, for Abraham, he believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. We believe God and we are made the righteousness of, righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. What will God withhold from his righteous family? Not a thing, ever, under any circumstances. Jesus said all things are possible to him that believes. What are we supposed to believe in? We're supposed to believe in what Jesus did for us. And under those conditions, may not be overnight, may take a while, but all things are possible. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we love you so much. We thank you for all that you've done. We thank you, Father, that you care about us just like you cared about Abraham. Jesus told us that because of his sacrifice, we have the same place in you or in him with you that he had with you himself. We thank you, Father, that there's nothing that's too hard for you. We thank you, Father, that there's no good thing that you'll ever withhold from us. We thank you, Father, that Jesus fulfilling the type, the Old Testament type upon which the covenant with Abraham was based, now the blessings of Abraham are ours. We thank you, Father, for blessing us. We thank you for your goodness to us. And we declare unto you, Father, that what we want most is to know you. To know you and the power of your resurrection and the fellowship of your sufferings. That we might live the Christian life, the Christ life that you sent Jesus for us to have. Thank you, Father, for being so good.